before we go on, Dave is going in for surgery tomorrow to have his thyroid removed. And I just wanted to take a moment and pray for him. So if you'd join me, let's just, um, let's just take a moment and pray together. If that's okay. Is this okay? Please. Okay, thank good. You. All right, for you. Lord, we thank you for Dave and for the example that he is to us for his service um, in this part of your church. And we pray that you would bless him, especially as he prepares for tomorrow. We pray that you would give him a calm heart, um, that you would give him peace that can only come from you. We pray for those who will be treating him tomorrow and operating on him, that you would give them wisdom, that you would help them to have uh, clear minds and to make good decisions um, and to, um, to, to do their very best, to give the best of their medical abilities. We thank you for the level of medical care that we are able to enjoy in this part of the world. Um, and we pray that you would help us not to take it for granted, um, but to be grateful that it's available to us. And we pray that you would protect Dave that the surgery would be smooth and successful and that you would heal him well afterwards. And we look forward um, to enjoying and celebrating Christmas with him this year. Amen. Um, and thanks. And on that note, we, I know this is something we're not really, sorry, I'm using my microphone, that we're not really doing so much at the moment because we don't have connection cards. But if you have prayer requests, whether it's health-related or other things, sorry, Greg, I'll get myself sorted here in a minute and then you can stop needing to tweak things, please, um, please get in touch. Thanks, Mike. Please get in touch. You know, email the pastors. You can email pastors at Oak Ridge. You can email the church office. Um, if you have requests, please don't, um, please don't just kind of sit in silence with them. Please share them so that we can be praying for you. Um, realize that with COVID, it is hard to keep in touch still. And, um, you know, even though we are doing that through life groups, and other ways, um, don't just, you know, please, if there's anything that is a need and you feel like you don't have someone you can ask, then just get in touch. Email pastors at Oak Ridge and just tell us what that need is. And, and you know, we will, we will pray. We will do what we can to help. We will engage others if needed to help you as well. We are a body. We're a family. So just encourage you. Let's, let's, um, let's act like one. Um, there's one other thing I wanted just to mention before we get to this morning's message. Um, and that is just uh, a, um, an encouragement. Mike mentioned this, I think, maybe it was last week or the week before, um, about the, our tech team. So our tech team is, um, is very lightly staffed at the moment and facing um, significant extra work still with uh, streaming capabilities. Sunday mornings before our services start are a lot busier than they used to be, uh, plus we're on an earlier time scale, all of that kind of coming together. And so I would really like to encourage you to consider helping um, serving on the tech team if you have some bandwidth. You do not have to be technical. I know that sounds like a contradiction, right? If you look at that soundboard and you think kind of like Michael Knight did when he first got into Knight Rider and he said, this looks like Darth Vader's bathtub. I don't know what to do with this, right? If you look at that soundboard and that's what you think, don't worry. You don't have to be doing what Greg is doing right now. There are lots of other jobs that need doing. If, you can, if you're reasonably competent with PowerPoint, then you can be trained on our presentation software, right? And you can run media like Luke is doing right now. If you know one end of a cable from another, or if both ends look the same and it doesn't matter which end they go in, then you can help on the tech team, okay? So please consider that. Um, we do have a couple of folks who have stepped up to help, but, I, but please um, you know, um, consider that as well because we need, we need extra help. Um, those guys are very, they're working very hard at the moment and basically same guys every week, so thanks guys. All right, that's public service announcement over. Welcome. 
Welcome to the third Sunday of Advent. Um, there is a challenge in giving Advent messages, which is that everybody knows the story. It's kind of like uh, if you take somebody to watch Titanic and you try to surprise them, right? There's the guy in the lookout and he's like, Iceberg, dead ahead, rings the bell. And then you're like, oh, come on, just turn a bit faster. You can miss it. You can, it won't. No, it works out the same every time. Advent is the same every time. Everyone knows the story. But what's interesting is that God has been showing me a series of new things uh, this year and also in the last couple of years. Um, And so there are two things that I want us to consider this morning as we come to um, our next section of Advent. And the first is maybe just a new perspective that we would see something new or different uh, in the Advent story this morning, some things that maybe we've taken for granted that aren't necessarily true, or some things that uh, we hadn't realized that are true. Um, and then more importantly than that, the second thing is how do we respond to this? How do we respond to what God has done? And so this morning, we are going to turn, in the main, we'll be jumping around a little bit, but in the main to Luke chapter 1 and verses 26 through 56. I'm going to read this. It's 30 verses, so it'll take a couple of minutes, but it's worth the time. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Now, reading this passage and other parts of the Nativity account, there are many things that we don't actually know. And so, here are a few of them. Firstly, how old was Mary when Jesus was born? We don't know. She was probably a teenager, maybe as young as 13 or 14, just going by the customs of the time, maybe as old as 20. But bottom line, we don't know. Secondly, what did Mary's parents think of her? Ever considered that question? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel to appear to Mary. And then after he had spoken to her, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Take a look at this map with me for a minute, if it's big enough. This is a map that shows a couple of possible routes that Mary and Joseph would have taken from Nazareth down to Bethlehem when they went to register for the census. It's a trip of about 90 plus a little bit miles. Would have taken several days in those days, right? You went on foot or maybe on a donkey. Notice where Judea is. Bethlehem is in the northern part of the Judean hill country. We often gloss over this. When, when we read this verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. She was taking a multi-day trip down through Israel, through occupied Israel, probably a bit past Bethlehem, just statistically speaking, likelihood Bethlehem's in the north of Judea. So she made this trip not once but twice before Jesus was born, once to see Elizabeth and then once with Joseph for the census. Parents of teenage daughters, raise your hand at home if you are at home, <laughs> right? What would you think if your young daughter went off on a multi-day road trip across the country? It's akin to taking a road trip across the US. It's that sort of length of, you know, how long it would take. What would you think if she came back pregnant three months later? Ever considered that? Scripture doesn't tell us anything about what Mary's parents thought of her, what Mary's experience was like. What was it like when she came home? How was she treated? How hard was it for her to hold on to what the angel had said to her and trust that she was in God's will and not just a rejected person, if indeed that's what happened. But this actually brings us to another question, and this one's a mind-bender. Was Mary actually pregnant by the time she returned to Nazareth? Now, you're going to look at me, you're going to be like, yeah, she was. We, yeah, we know this one. Well, this is one of the things that God revealed to me recently that actually we don't know. Listen to this carefully. In the sixth month, Gabriel went to Nazareth, and um, talks to Mary, and what does he say? He says, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Similarly, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is the child you will bear. We skip ahead here a little bit to the end of chapter one as well. I'm going to read pretending that there are no chapter markers in the way here. Quick shout out to John Toner, who's been encouraging us all and the teaching team to read 
scripture without chapter and verse numbers, and I bought myself a reader's Bible a while back and have been doing just that, and it's really interesting. I highly recommend it when you suddenly take all the numbers out of the way. So the end of what we call chapter one, you've got Zachariah's song, Zachariah talking about, he's prophesying, and he talks about uh, John, his son, and who he will be. And the child, that is John the Baptist, became, uh, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And we know where the story goes from there. Now, this doesn't tell us anything for certain, but it implies that John was already growing up when the census happened, and thus when Jesus was born. So again, ultimately, we don't know. The angel told Mary, you will be with child. He didn't say, you are with child, and he's going to be born in nine months. We just don't know what this timing was like. Two more, okay? Was Jesus born in a stable? This was something I realized for the first time this year. Scripture never says anything about a stable. Luke describes how Jesus was laid in a manger, and the shepherds were instructed, go to Bethlehem and you will find a child lying in a manger, and that's exactly what they did. This clear manger is a feeding trough, right? An animal feeding trough. So this clearly implies that there were animals there. And that could well have been in a wooden stable as we tend to picture it. Equally, it could have been in a cave because animals were known to be sheltered in caves in Palestine in that time. It could even have been the ground floor of a house because animals were known to be sheltered in the ground floor of houses overnight in Palestine in that time. And the people lived upstairs. So when it says there was no room at the inn, they laid Jesus in the manger because there was no room in the inn. In theory, that could be, well, that's meant there was no room upstairs where the people were sleeping, so they were downstairs with the animals. Could even be in an open field somewhere where there happened to be a feeding trough. Who knows? We don't know. And the last one was Jesus born at night. We sing, O Holy Night. We sing a lot of Christmas carols that talk about, we are going to sing our holy night on Christmas Eve most likely as well, just heads up. The shepherds went to see Jesus at night, but what did the angel actually say to them? Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. So the angel appears at night and speaks to the shepherds and says, today a savior has been born. The shepherds didn't witness the birth of Jesus. They came to visit him after he'd been born. In fact, the word for today in the Greek is semaron, and it's kind of the same as we, the way we use the word day, in that it's actually its primary meaning is to distinguish between day and night, the period of time between sunrise and sunset, but it can also be used as a period of 24 hours, so we don't know. It seems likely that Jesus was born in the daytime, and then the shepherds went to see him at night, maybe when Mary had had a few hours to recover. It does tell us one thing, though. Probably not born in an open field, because the angel says, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. All right, excellent. We're making some progress. Good. So this brings us to the obvious question, well, what do we know? There are lots of these things that we don't know, and it's interesting that I I feel like um, the more I read the nativity accounts, the more I'm prompted about things that I have assumed that are not necessarily true. They may be true, but I don't know. And ultimately, these things are less important. And we need to dispel any of these kind of sentimental notions, these romanticizing of the nativity story, and focus on what God actually tells us. And, as I mentioned before, how we should respond to him. 
One of the things that we learn from this account in Luke is that God chooses the lowly. There is a clear theme throughout this passage of God choosing the lowly. In fact, Mary even says in her Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Now, there are two kinds of lowliness that we're talking about here. Firstly, there are those who are seen as lowly. And the prime example of this is the shepherds. Right, shepherds were a low rung in society. They were hired workers. They didn't own the flocks that they looked after. They were sleeping in the fields. So they were not well thought of. They didn't get you know, uh, uh, privilege and nice comfy beds and warm fires. So they were considered lowly. And secondly, there are those who make themselves lowly, i.e. humble. In fact, these are really the same word, right? Lowly as in making yourself appear low. The word humble in English comes from the Latin word hummus, which is the ground. So to be humble is literally to make yourself metaphorically or physically close to the ground, earthly. So those who make themselves lowly. And who are they in this case? Well, let's look at a few of them. Firstly, there's Elizabeth. Elizabeth says to Mary, one of the first Uh, things she says when Mary arrives. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She is questioning. She's like, I'm not an important person. Why would I be so favored that, you know, this, this special person would come and see me? She's demonstrating humility. She's not just like, hey, Mary, it's great to see you. But like, why do I get this special blessing? Secondly, there's Mary herself. Mary says in Mary's song, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's talking about herself. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Notice that she says blessed. She doesn't say will call me great or will call me worthy or will call me important or super cool or anything like that. Blessed. In fact, she goes on to say in the words after this, For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She maintains that God is the mighty one. Contrast that for a moment with the account of Hagar in Genesis when she learns that she is pregnant with Ishmael. And she gloats over Sarah and she becomes full of self-importance. Right? And she niggles at Sarah because, eh, you couldn't have a baby and now I'm having one with your husband. And Mary's response is completely different. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Thirdly, there's Joseph. In Matthew's account, we read these words, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, so he was a just and upright man, and yet did not want to expose her, that is Mary, to public disgrace he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This, of course, happens when he learns that Mary is pregnant, and yet the two of them have not yet had any union, and therefore he knows that this is not his child. Joseph didn't speak about uh, uh, outrage, or he didn't demand reparation or compensation. This verse tells us he was not thinking of himself. He was thinking primarily of Mary. 
He is exemplifying humility. In fact, here's a verse that we quote quite frequently in our house, especially as it pertains to sibling disagreements. Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or more important than yourselves. Joseph is actually exemplifying this in his response when he learns that Mary is pregnant. And of course, we want to take it a step further, Jesus is the prime example of this. If we read on in Philippians, let me just flip there for a second, I'm going off script, but I know where Philippians is, so that's good. Except now, now I'm going all around it instead of to it. There we go. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now this is something that Kira is going to share more on next week, so I don't want to steal that thunder. But notice what's going on here. Those verses are talking about how Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He made himself earthly. He made himself low to the earth. He made himself humble. He is the prime example of humility because he literally came from heaven to earth to be low and close to the earth with us. But Joseph is exemplifying a similar thing here, right, in his humility and thinking of Mary above himself. Fourthly, we have Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, not quite as explicit as the others, right? He had a bit of a slip along the way. The angel says, you're going to have a son. And he says, really? Are you sure? And the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Stop arguing with me. He doesn't say stop arguing with me, but that's the implication, right? And then, as we know, Zechariah is mute until the point when John is born, so it takes him a moment. He doesn't quite, you know, he has that little slip along the way, but he submits to God's instruction. The point at which he regains his voice is the point at which John is born and his relatives gather around and they ask Elizabeth, you know, they, they're going to call him Zachariah after his father. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And they're all aghast, like, what do you mean, John? There's no one in your family called John. And so they ask Zachariah and he asks for a writing tablet and he writes, his name is John. He yields to God, to God's instruction. And then the first words out of his mouth, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. At least the first recorded words that we have. So what is the result of all of this, of all of these humble people being involved? Well, the result is praise. Did you know that there are in fact Four hymns of praise contained in the first two chapters of Luke. We're even singing two of them this morning. In chapter one, there is what in the Latin is called the Magnificat, Mary's song, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. We're going to close our time this morning with My Soul Magnifies the Lord. Secondly, in chapter one, there's Zechariah's prophecy and song, which is known as the Benedictus where the, the words that I just started reading to you, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Thirdly, there are the angels, going on into chapter two, who sing glory to God in the highest, gloria in excelsis Deo. We already sang those words this morning. And then fourthly, there is Simeon's words in chapter two. Simeon, the prophet who was in the temple and... Um, 
God had told him that he would see the Messiah before he died, and so he sees Jesus, and he takes him in his arms and prays God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. And that is what's known as the nunc dimittis, which means now you send, or you, now you dismiss, sending his servant away in peace. So why is it important that um, God chooses the lowly? Because that brings about praise to God. And that is a good thing. And I want to focus just for a moment as we start to wrap this up on the last of these. Or the first of them even. Ha! Not the last. Let's try the first. First shall be last. Last shall be first. My soul magnifies the Lord. What does this mean? What is a magnificat? Well, magnifies could have the, 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 uh, the meaning glorifies as well, right? Our souls can bring glory to God. Does that mean that we can somehow make God greater than he is without us? No. God's already great. We don't make him any greater. Magnify normally means to make something bigger, right? To enlarge it, to make it greater. So how does this work? What does this mean? Well, we can't actually make God greater, but we can make him greater in our lives. How do we do that? Well, we do that by being close to him. I'm sure most of you have seen a picture like this somewhere on the internet. Or perhaps this one. How does this work? How do these pictures work? Well, it's all a question of perspective, isn't it? The group of people in this picture are far away from the man with his hand out, so they appear to be very small. Let's assume that the one that we're looking at is this man in the foreground with his hand out. If he were to go and stand next to those people, to draw near to them, and then we went and took a picture of him again, we would see those other people much larger than they are right now. So it is with us and God. If we draw next to him and others are watching our lives, they will see more of God reflected in us. We will magnify the Lord with our lives. And I don't want to stop there. So, so far what we've worked out is that God chooses the lowly and that he can use us too, even though we are lowly. In fact, especially if we are lowly. The more humble we are, the more God can use us. I want to challenge you with a third thing as well, and a different kind of picture. The shepherds in the nativity were looked down upon in society. They were not considered as important or successful or particularly worthy of anything. And this thought is prompted by something that... Um, Pastor David Deglow shared with us recently, for which I'm very grateful. We must not look down on those who are seen as lowly for whatever reason, whether it's because they're homeless and panhandling or whatever reason it might be. God can use them for his praise and for the kingdom just as much as he can use any one of us, if not more. As Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others. It doesn't say which others, it just says others more significant than yourselves. So there are those three thoughts that I just want to distill down into one thing for you. The three thoughts are that God chooses the lowly, 
that he can use us too as long as and especially if we are lowly and that we must not look down on others because we see them as lowly. God sees us all as equals. And so especially coming up in the next, we know Elsie's excited about Christmas coming up in the next two weeks. I want to give you this challenge. I want to leave you with this challenge. Yes, COVID changes things. We don't interact with people as much or in the same way as we usually do. But over these next two weeks, especially as we prepare to celebrate Christmas and the birth of Jesus, how can I make God greater in my life in the hope that others will also see his glory reflected in me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of sending Jesus into the world. And we know that we can only partly wrap our arms around what it is that you've done for us, that we can't really fully grasp the magnitude of what you've done for us. And yet we understand, in principle, we understand, we read in your word, your story, your telling of what you have done for us, and we are grateful to you for it. We want to thank you for sending Jesus into the world to be a light among us, to be the word made flesh, to be our prime example of humility and goodness, perfection, to follow, and to be the sacrifice for us ultimately by going to the cross. And Lord, we pray that you would guide each of us over these next couple of weeks especially. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to those around us. And we pray that you would help us to draw close to you, to contemplate what you have done for us, to spend time in your word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time devoted to you, that we might draw close to you and that we might reflect your glory, that we might magnify you to those around us. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.